Hello, and welcome to the Bible Initiative Podcast. My name is Tim Fritzen. I'm the lead pastor at Liberty Christian Fellowship. We're excited that you're joining with us over the course of this year as we read the large story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Our hope in these supplemental podcasts is to be able to provide additional information on topics or questions that arise during our reading of Scripture. In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in a podcast we're entitling Discussing the Nephilim. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 presents some unique interpretive challenges, both for pastors and teachers and theologians, as well as Bible translators, and also everyday Bible readers. And so we just want to begin by reading the passage. Here's what it says. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. If you've listened to the message, the sermon that goes with our passage on the fall, at the beginning, I talked about the difference between certainties and possibilities within Scripture, that certainties are things that we hold with a closed fist. They're the absolute truths of who God is, who, who, who humanity is, what Jesus did to save us. Those are things that we can be confident of and certain of. And then there are other places in Scripture where there are possibilities, things that are a little bit more challenging to know for certain, where it's perfectly acceptable to seek out answers and to hold a position, but we hold those with an open hand. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, offers us an opportunity to talk about possibilities, but also to nail down some certainties and live in light of those. And so that's what we want to do today. The primary challenge surrounding this passage of Scripture deals with who are the sons of God and the daughters of men, and why is it that their interaction or relationships with one another leads the Lord to pronounce a type of judgment upon his people. And so there are three predominant theories for who these two groups of individuals could be, the sons of God and the daughters of men, and I just want to walk through them. It is very difficult to say for certain if one of these three is true or if none of these three are true, but these are the three different interpretations that most uh, orthodox, conservative, Christian pastors, teachers, and theologians fall into. The first would be that the sons of God refers to angelic beings and that the daughters of men are exactly that, the daughters of humanity. In this interpretation, these angelic beings have taken on a human form and are not just interacting with humanity, but actually taking human daughters as wives. In favor of this interpretation are the fact that other passages of Scripture use that phrase, the sons of God, in order to talk about angels. You can find those in Job, in Psalms, and in Daniel. And we've also, you also see in other places in Scripture that angels can take on a form that is visible to humans. Now, there are some points against this interpretation as well. Some people deny it simply because it seems somewhat bizarre that angels and humans could be uh, relating to one another, not just relating, but actually engaging in sexual activity with one another. Another objection is that there are passages in the New Testament that state that angels do not marry. You can find those in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And there's a third 
rejection to this claim or possible rejection. And that's the fact that if this were the case, that the Lord is angered because angels are taking human daughters for wives in marriage, there's a th- the third problem comes with humanity being punished for the sinful action of angels, and that doesn't seem fair or in line with God's character. So that's the first possible interpretation, that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are just that, the daughters of humanity. The second possible interpretation is this, that the sons of God refers to an early pre-flood royal family, and the daughters of men are the many wives that they took. In favor of this is that it's certainly easier to understand from a human standpoint, and it keeps in line with the progression uh, in Genesis that we saw in the family line of Lamech in Genesis 4, who took multiple wives. Within this understanding, then, the sin, or what causes the Lord anger, is polygamy, which, though regrettably is prevalent throughout the Old Testament, is not within God's will for humanity. It's not within his design for marriage. Standing against this interpretation is that even though at the time kings were often thought of as being the son of God, uh, there isn't much evidence for viewing an entire family of kings as the collective sons of God. So uh, again, the second interpretation or possible interpretation is that the sons of God are an early pre-flood royal family and the daughters of men constitute multiple wives or harems that they took as kings ruling at that time. The third interpretation is that the sons of God are the children born in the family line of Seth, while the daughters of men are the children born to the family line of Cain. In favor of this interpretation is that this stays directly in line with the context of the passage, especially considering the genealogy found in chapter 5, which lists the sons or the males in Seth's family line. In this case, the sin is the intermarrying between Seth and Cain's children that If you were to flip back to chapter 4, where Cain murders Abel and Cain is sentenced to a life of wandering around the earth because of his sin, that it would have not been within the Lord's will for Seth's children to intermarry with Cain's children. Against this interpretation is that nowhere before or after are these phrases used to describe either Seth or Cain's families. Seth's sons are never referred to as the sons of God. Again, Cain's daughters or children are never referred to as the daughters of men. There is one other challenge in this passage, and it actually arrives in verse 4. Let me just read verse 4 to you. It says this, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. The second challenge within this passage is, who are the Nephilim? Well, we get a little bit of help in that regard from Numbers chapter 13. You don't need to flip there. I'll I'll flip there and read it for us. Numbers chapter 13 tells the story of some of the Israelite men being sent into the promised land in order to see if it's safe to inhabit and if they'll be able to overtake the inhabitants who live there. And some of them come back and they give an encouraging report, but some of them come back and are intimidated by those who live there. And they say this, beginning in verse 31, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. 
And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. That's the only other Old Testament reference to this group of people called Nephilim. In fact, the word Nephilim actually translates directly to fallen ones. Again, it's impossible to know uh, exactly who the Nephilim are. Some would say that they are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, that these are the children born out of those frowned upon relationships. Others would say that they're a different group of people entirely who were around before the flood and who are also around after the flood, and that they may have no relation at all to the offspring of these relationships that the Lord frowned upon. What we do know is that they were present at the time of Noah before the flood and that they're present at the time after the flood when the Israelites go to take the promised land. The reality in this passage is that there simply isn't enough information in this passage or in surrounding passages to come to a certain answer as to who some of these people are. And so we're left with the challenge of what do we do with a passage like this? Well, what we do is we hold out that there are possibilities. It is possible that these were angelic beings who engaged in relationships with humans. It is possible that these are an interaction between the family line of Seth and the family line of Cain, or it is possible that this is a group of rulers who took multiple wives and engaged in the sin of of polygamy, polygamous relationships. And so we hold out each of those, and it's okay to pick one that you think sounds good. It's okay to research and try to learn more about the differing opinions and to come to a particular interpretation. But because we can't know for certain, we also need to be willing to extend grace to those who believe something different to us. At the same time, there are some certainties we can pull out of the passage, and I want to look at those next. I think we can pull out of this passage a few things that we know for certain, and we can take those and we can read scripture in light of them, we can live in light of them, and we can understand something about who God is and what he's trying to tell us in this story because of them. The first is this, there's sinful activity taking place. Something about the relationship that exists between the sons of God and the daughters of men is displeasing to the Lord. Whether it's a relationship between humanity and angels, or whether it involved the practice of polygamy, or whether it was a mixing of Seth and Cain's line, there's something here that's going on that is displeasing to the Lord. And because of sin, the second thing we know is that God is just in issuing a judgment upon humanity. He does that in verse 3. We're told, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God issues a judgment there. And because God is holy and humanity is sinful, he is just in his judging. And that judgment is that their days are going to be limited to 120 years. Now, you'll notice when you continue reading in Genesis that some people live beyond 120 years in their age. Again, there, there are two possibilities here that the judgment is brought about in a delayed manner, similar to the death of Adam and Eve after eating the fruit. The Lord told them that they would die, but they didn't die immediately upon eating it. Their punishment came about in a delayed manner. They died later. It's possible, as you read through Genesis, you'll see that age doesn't get restricted directly to 120 years, but it does begin to dwindle rather quickly and begins to settle at or around the 120-year mark. The second option is this, that this judgment is actually an indication, a a foreshadowing that the flood is coming, and that that flood could be coming in about 120 years. Both of those are possibilities. But 
a pattern should stand out to us here at this point if you've been reading since Genesis chapter 1, and that's that humanity sins. And in previous cases, it's the sin of an individual. It's the sin of Adam. It's the sin of Cain. It's the sin of Lamech. But now we're seeing a sin among a group of people. And in the story of the flood, we're going to see sin talked about throughout all of humanity. And when there is sin, God judges. God judges in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve face the reality of physical and spiritual and eternal death and separation from the Lord. They also are given curses that are going to follow them, that there'll be pain and childbearing, and that Adam is going to have to toil and work the ground. Humanity sins, God judges. In the case of Cain and Abel, it's the same way. There's a sin and a judgment. And what we're about to see in the flood is that in response to humanity's sin, God judges. Ultimately, this passage of Scripture serves to move us into the account of the flood and setting the stage for the increasing degree of humanity's sin and the degree to which that grieves the Lord. And so despite what we don't know for certain in this passage, we can live in light of what we do know. We know that humanity is sinful. Both the Bible and our personal experiences bear witness to that truth. And we know that God is holy and just, and he will judge the sin of humanity. Now, when we read in the rest of... Uh, this week's reading uh, of the flood account, we see that judgment come in the form of a flood, and we see God preserve humanity through the person of Noah. For believers today, when we understand the reality of our sin and that God is going to judge, we know that that judgment has been placed upon Christ and that all of God's wrath towards sin was poured out upon him and that humanity is saved by faith in his work on the cross. So there is some certainty we can take out of this. A sinful humanity, a holy God who is just in his judgment, and then what we read in the rest of the Genesis story is that God saves humanity through Noah. The bigger story of the Bible is that humanity is sinful, God is just in his judgment, and that God saves humanity through the work of Jesus Christ. hope that this has been helpful, looking at a place where there are possibilities, but there are also certainties and how we can separate those two things, live in light of the certainties, ask questions about the possibilities and extend grace to those who believe something different than we do or who land on a different interpretation than we do. As always, uh, as you continue to follow along the Bible Initiative, you can use our website to access all of our resources. That's www.thebibleinitiative.com. We encourage you to go there and check that out and to engage. And we want to encourage you to continue reading and enjoying your time in Scripture. 